You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. This past Wednesday, uh, Wednesday during the day, so I'm part of the staff, that's part of being a resident, um, and I was, I was at, the, at the Sojourn Heights building, and we were talking, I was talking with Paul, which is another resident, and Charlotte, which is the administrative manager, which basically means she does anything and everything behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see, and we're really grateful for her. So because of that, um, last week, she wasn't able to, to be part of the gatherings because she was doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And so uh, I think Tuesday, she heard, she heard the sermon that Brandon preached, our lead pastor at Sojourn Heights, and she was talking about it. And she, she was talking about how, how much of a blessing it was for her to hear uh, the, the prayer at the end of the sermon um, our director of Gathered Worship, I don't know how you guys do it here, but they usually cut off the prayer at the end of the sermon when they upload it to the podcast. Um, and so for some reason, uh, the, the prayer was left uh, at the end of this sermon. So Charlotte was talking about uh, how, how, how much of a blessing that was to her um, and, and how, how it served for her to really drive the truth home that, that was just preached. So there's something about a good focused prayer after a sermon by the preacher that really serves to, to hit the nail on the head of the truth that he just preached, right? And, and this prayer that Christ offers up on behalf of his people, is, is, it's very much like a, a prayer after a sermon. After talking to his people about God and speaks very encouraging truths to his people, he then talks to God about his people. In their presence so they could hear. And this is very important for us to, to remember. That he did this in their presence so they could hear. Similar to how that prayer uh, by a preacher after a sermon uh, serves, when, when it's a focused prayer, um, it really serves to encourage us and to motivate us to really obey and, and, and walk out of that uh, uh, gathering encouraged by the truth that was just preached. In a very similar way, Christ, after having uh, uh, preached uh, um, a multitude of sermonettes through, through chapter 13 through 16, which, which in what is known as the upper room discourse, after Christ preaches many beautiful and encouraging truths to the disciples, he finishes off with this prayer in their presence, and he lifts up this prayer to the Father. And as we examine this prayer, we'll see the connection between the truth that he had just proclaimed to his disciples and the truth spoken through this prayer, and we'll be taking a deeper look into Jesus' ultimate desire expressed through this prayer. And so studying this text and trying to put together a 30-minute sermon, 30-ish minutes, uh, it is impossible to put the high priestly prayer in one sermon. So I'm not at all attempting to do that this morning. Um, we, could, we could study the high priestly prayer, and for weeks upon weeks upon weeks, uh, it's such a dense portion of Scripture. So what I will attempt to do this morning is extract the main themes, some of the main themes that go together with the theme of our series 
and, and extract three main points from this and, and one main desire that Christ had being this, that Christ ultimately desires his church to reflect the oneness and the unity found in the Trinity so that God is glorified and the world will know that Jesus is the Messiah. I'll repeat it for you if you're taking notes. That Christ ultimately desires for his church to reflect the oneness and the unity found in the Trinity so that God is glorified and the world may come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. As we navigate through this text, I want us to focus on three results of this Trinity-inspired unity. When we as God's people display this kind of unity and oneness found in the Trinity, never at the expense of truth and holiness, of course, the results will always be, point number one, a deeply shared joy, point number two, a persuasive witness to the world, and these two result in point number three, a display of God's glory. So let's begin first with some context, and then we'll jump into point number one. This, this prayer was offered up by Jesus to the Father before Jesus' crucifixion and before entering the Garden of Gethsemane. As I said, it's, it's known as um, the upper room discourse, the, 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 the preaching that went on, the encouraging of truth before this prayer. And Jesus does some significant things in this upper room. He speaks a great deal of truth, but he starts off by serving his disciples through the washing of their feet, right? And then he goes on talking about him being the vine, right? So many things that he, that he speaks of. You can go back and, and reread 13 through 16, chapters 13, uh, 13 through 16, extremely encouraging words that he speaks. Then towards the end of this compilation of kind of sermonettes, he promises the Holy Spirit, telling his disciples that it is imperative that he goes to the Father so that the helper, the comforter, the counselor will be sent to them. And then he finishes off by saying or promising to them that in this world they will have tribulation, but to not be discouraged, to take heart because he has overcome the world. And right after this, John 17:1 shows Jesus looking up to heaven and lifting his eyes to the heavens and and praying this prayer. Something important for us to, to, to know as we dive into this uh, theme and into this text is that Christ is specifically praying here for the church, for those whom the Father has given him, and not just simply a general prayer for the whole world. But we'll see how God incorporates the world in his prayer. But he first prays for his church. So on to point number one, a deeply shared joy. In verse 13, Christ says he speaks of these things, his prayer. He speaks these things so that the disciples would have Jesus' joy fulfilled in them. And I know we read verses 1 through 11, but I'm going to extract a couple of verses after that as well. And so verse 13, I'll read it for you. It says, but now I am coming to you. Jesus is talking to the Father and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, the unity Christ desires for us to display to each other and to the world ultimately results in Jesus' joy being filled, fulfilled in us. And as a unified body, 
I mean, we get to share in the fullness of the joy that, that Jesus experiences and that Jesus shares with us. And this joy is not at all easy, though. We are sinners, right? We, we, uh, we do go astray at times in, in heart, mind, and in action. And we can be encouraged, though, that if Jesus wills it and if Jesus willed it and prayed for it and desired for us to be one, as the Father and the Son are one, and for his joy to be fulfilled in us, then it will come to pass. But I want you guys to really hear this. It doesn't come to pass through our passivity. It doesn't come through our passivity. It is given by God through the inner workings of life on life, community, uh, fighting together for this unified joy. As a church family, as a neighborhood parish, God wants us to fight for this joy together. It, is, it, is, it would be easier to, to try to live an individualistic Christian life uh, and to be just, just me and Jesus and I'm so full of joy, uh, but you're not opening up yourself to other people around you. You're not allowing them to speak into the ridiculousness of your life uh, in areas where you're just totally blinded by your, by your own sin. And I speak, this is all of us, right? Um, we need people to look into our life and say, bro, you, you are out of step with the gospel. Like, bro, bro, you have believed the cultural lie that says this. This is the truth of the gospel. We need that for each other. And we also need that um, for our brothers and sisters. They need it, so we need to be in community with them so we can spot that out for them out of love. It does not come easy, but why is the fight for this deeply shared joy worth giving our lives to? Why is this deeply shared joy worth giving our lives to? Why not just, you know, decide in our hearts that we will strive for joy in Jesus outside of deep community? The reason is found in the gospel. See, this joy that Christ speaks of he calls it his joy. And, and what is it that makes Christ joyful, brothers and sisters? What is it that makes God rejoice? What makes God rejoice? It's none other than a unified body, ransomed by the blood of Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. And let me read these two passages of Scripture to better explain and expound this truth. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but I'll read them for you. Uh, Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10, and then 15 through 20 says this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. In verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the might, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you 
with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in and at that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And this is the promise made by God before Christ had come through the prophet Zephaniah, and we see it fulfilled in Revelation 7 through 9 through 12. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 12 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face, on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Our God ultimately desires that his church reflect the unity in diversity that is only found in his nature, which is his triune nature, the Trinity. So much so that when we get to heaven, unity in diversity is what will be reflected as we just read in Revelation 7. This makes God rejoice over his people. This fills Jesus with joy. But more than that, this joy was what was set before Jesus as he was on his way to the cross. And we can be reminded of Hebrews where it says that, um, therefore, since there is such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, right? And sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. When I was studying this passage and I was trying to uh, kind of fill in this point number one, I felt there was a disconnect in in my mind and in my heart and I felt like uh, I didn't want to just talk about joy and then talk about unity and talk about God's glory. Like, obviously, Christ prayed all of this in one prayer, so there's a connection. Man, and then, and then, this, then the Holy Spirit just, um, it, you know, when you, when you read a, a verse sometimes, and you've read it over and over, and then all of a sudden you read it again, and the Spirit just quickens you. and Like, it stands out. It jumps out at you. That's what happened to me when I read verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus calls this his joy. This is the joy that he had set before him like tunnel vision as he was going up to the cross. This joy that he would ransom from many people, from many tribes, from many languages and nations, ethnicities, 
one people, united under the banner of Christ, worshiping, proclaiming as one the glory of God. And this was what was at the forefront of his mind when he went up to Calvary and when he resurrected. This was the joy that was set before him. His diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, international, diverse church is what Jesus was thinking about when he died on the cross, ransomed from many tribes. And we see this passion to take our place clearly in verse 19, which is, which is really what, what everything else hinges on. I'll read verse 19 for you. It says, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Brothers and sisters, none of this would be possible. We wouldn't even be here, as a matter of fact, had Christ not first decided to say, I consecrate myself, I set myself apart. So him consecrating himself was him setting himself apart to do the Father's will. And he said he did this. He consecrates himself, gave himself up as a ransom for many so that we would be sanctified in this truth. And so we see that at the heart of his joy, at the heart of his desire for us to be united, he knew that we would fail. He knew that we can't do this. He knew this is supernatural to have unity in diversity expressed in a group, in a multitude of broken people is impossible for us to do. So Christ, being the sacrificial lamb, offers himself as a sacrifice. Having always reflected the perfect unity in diversity with his Father and with the Holy Spirit from all eternity past, have you been perfectly united in this tri-unity, he sets aside his, his godness, right? Though he never ceased being God, but laid aside the right to claim, hey, I'm God, don't do this to me. And he humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross. And doesn't Paul also remind us in this chapter, Philippians 2, to strive for unity, to, to, to consider our brothers before we consider ourselves? It hinges on the gospel. It hinges on the, the sacrificial life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Christ stated in his prayer, he speaks these things in the world for our benefit. He had no need to ask the Father out loud in prayer for these things. For the Son and, and, and the Father are always united in will and in purpose. But Christ specifically offers up this audible prayer for his disciples around him as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, right after having left the upper room. He's, he prays this prayer for the joy of his disciples, that they would listen to the will of the Father 
as expressed by the Son. And this is what, this is what makes God joyful, this unity. And God not only rejoices over his people, not only does Jesus get joyful and get full of, of this rejoicing when he sees a unified body, but God also invites us into the overflowing joy that has always been shared by the eternal trinity. God invites his people, broken as they may be, into the delight of the trinity. Not that deified, that's heresy, right? But he invites us into the, the sharing of this joy that God has always shared in perfect community. And that, that is amazing. And our joy is made full because the joy he shares with himself, it's like it runs over, like a cup running over. He can't help but get full of joy when he sees a unified body living in unity and diversity. He can't help but rejoice because that is displaying the character of our triune God. And that joy overflows out of him. And, he, and, and we read in Zephaniah, Zephaniah that he rejoices over us and he exults over us with loud singing. And this is, this is a joyful God that we serve. And that joy flows out of him, pours out, and falls onto his church. And when we reflect him on earth in our unity, we do this in front of a of watching and dying world. They're looking in, peering into what the church is doing. And we become witnesses of this character of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. And this is why, this is why fighting for this deeply shared joy in community is worth giving our life to. This is why, because Jesus gave his life up for us to share in the joy and delight in the Trinity. This is why we seek to obey what Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Man, this sounds very romantic, right? To talk about us living in unity and in community and encouraging one another. And uh, man, it sounds beautiful. It sounds so idealistic. The reality is that we are broken. The reality is that we all carry wounds. The reality is that hurt people hurt people. And so when we begin to dwell in community, we will be hurt and we will hurt. And that's why Paul, Paul urges the, uh, the Ephesians, man, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we can, we can keep a uniformity that doesn't go deep, right, without peace, without there being real peace. But, but Christ wants us to, to dive deeper into community and establish true, deep, and lasting peace with our brothers and sisters. This means we run to the tension in the room of our parish gatherings. It means we run to the tension 
between our friendships, our, our, our brothers, between our brothers and sisters in community. It means we run to that. It doesn't mean we, we isolate ourselves. It doesn't mean we just decide to jump to another church because you'll find broken people there too. It means you run to that tension because Christ is worthy for you to run to that tension because he gave his life up for a unified church. And even for, you know, one, an example for me, um, I've, I've been going through a really tough uh, friendship with a certain brother of mine. And, and it, it, has, it has cut me to the core. And at times it's, it's been easy to think, man, I'm just going to maintain kind of the, you know, the friendship and keep him at a distance because, man, this is, this is like, this is too messy. Um, but, man, when, when, I see, when I see in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the wrath of God, why would I not endure some tension? Why would I not endure even going, going at it with one another, with other brothers present, to settle what it is, right? Because at the end of the day, we react out of wounds. We react out of trying to defend ourselves. We react out of selfishness. As we read in the prayer, it's, it's, it's easy for us to, to go astray and to not seek this unity that God desires and our eagerness to maintain this unity is stretched and tested when we're in community with people who are different from us. And when we're not just part of a, of a group of people that are like us, that have the same uh, dislikes, the same likes, the same style of music, the same kind of um, culture. You come from the same culture. Uh, but it's, this is happens when we're in community with people who are different from us. And this is what Christ died for. We find glimpses of unity in diversity throughout history and even in our world now. I was doing a, li- a little bit of, of, of kind of research and study, and, and the Greeks and the Romans studied what, it, what this unity and diversity was, and, and philosophy talks about it, um, all the way to, to today. And this, you know, you see the stickers with the coexist, Right? They're striving for a unity in diversity. And, and, and you hear these talks of, you know, let's just be at peace with one, just, let's just tolerate, let's, let's, let's have tolerance. But it's not, it's not really what, you know, a unity in diversity is really meant to be. All of our culture's um, examples of unity and diversity or attempts at uh, exemplifying this unity and diversity are either incomplete or completely distorted, all of them, and not to mention superficial. Mankind was created by God who eternally exists as unity in diversity, so it only makes sense that humans, that mankind has this innate desire to seek for unity in diversity. It only makes sense. That's why there's interest groups, and that's why um, people, man, people uh, are, are proud when they're part of a group, even, even as simple as like a bike ride in the city, right? That's becoming very popular, or like photography communities, and you see the, the diversity of people. And I'm part of a photography community here in Houston, and even in that, even in jumping into that, I began to see that there's cliques, that there's people that kind of begin to group off with people that are like them. And it's superficial at the end of the day, uh, our culture's attempt at unity 
in diversity. And, and, and Ravi Zacharias, a great apologist and theologian, says the greatest search in philosophy of all time has been the search for unity and diversity. And this is where the word university comes from, unity and diversity. People want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves, united to a greater cause with people that are different from them. And what a great opportunity that we have as the church to display what unity and diversity was meant to look like. When we invite them into the Christian community, when we share the gospel, when we disciple them, and even if they continue to come around being skeptics and being even atheists or agnostic, the foolishness that they thought the gospel was begins to look like wisdom to them. When they begin to see, like, how could um, these people from different sides of the tracks grow in such an intimate friendship? It doesn't make sense. But that's what the gospel does. That's what Christ does. And that with that, we move to our second points. Second and third are going to go pretty quickly, so don't get scared. <laughs> Only the gospel truly and deeply reconciles and unites people that are radically different from one another. And it's not easy, as I stated. And we have a Christ who prayed that it would happen, that we would be one as the Father and, and, and the Son are one. And because Christ prayed it, it will be, it will be fulfilled. But as much as it is his work, we must labor for this unity. And it is the Spirit indeed producing a desire in us for this unity. And so as we seek this unity with our brothers and sisters in community, in your parishes, we know that it is God actually working and willing in us to do this. And that's encouraging to know that the power doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from the Spirit. And we must kill our, our romantic idealism, though, of what we expect from our parish, what we expect from our brothers and sisters, because that is the killer of community. So Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, a person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. And so like I stated earlier in Ephesians 4, it calls us to be eager to maintain this unity. And, and brothers and sisters, when we are striving for this unity, imperfect as we may be, but striving to create this unity among us, that is a beautiful sight to behold in the sight of God and in the sight of other people that don't know Jesus. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, Psalm 131 says, the church reflecting the Father and the Son's oneness through the Spirit is God's primary mission strategy. And that sounds counterintuitive to the human mind. We want to establish, uh, you know, a great worship band. No, no offense to a great worship band, but that's not what ultimately saves people. It's Christ through reflecting His beautiful character to a dying world. Uh, we may want to do great evangelistic events, right? Put on events and, and uh, do all these great things for the community and all that is great. All that is, is needed and all that is good. But God's primary mission strategy is love one another as I have loved you and so prove to be my disciples. 
By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. God's primary mission strategy is that we love one another. And that, you know what that does? It strips us of our kind of self-righteous, legalistic uh, tendencies to try to become this great evangelist as much as that's needed. But God desires that we love one another and so show that to the world. And through that, Jesus prays, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in John, going back to John 14, an example here, Jesus, uh, is, is, when, he is, uh, when he's, and he's proclaiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. Philip says, show us the Father and, and we will believe. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have I not been so long with you, Philip, and yet you ask me, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' uh, goal on earth was to display the Father's character. And, and Jesus did that perfectly. He displayed the Father's glory, the Father's character. And in a similar way, though not exactly the same way, of course, because Christ is God. But Christ sends his church on mission to display the Father's character. And so we find in this prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says, as I have, if you have sent me, so I send them into the world. So Christ sends us into the world to display this glory. And with that, we go to point number three. How is God's glory displayed? Let me read uh, verses 20 through 22 for you. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, that being us, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus starts off his prayer by saying, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 13, Jesus says that he, Jesus, is glorified in his disciples. And then verse 23, he tells the Father, I have given them the glory that you've given me. Now, obviously, this is not the kind of glory expressed through worship. God doesn't share his glory with anyone in that sense. The kind of glory he's talking about here is the glorious privilege to display the Father's character, as I was talking about. So God, through Jesus, gives us this commission to display the Father's character, that being God's primary mission strategy, to reveal the Father's name to the world so that God would be glorified and the world may come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe this is what Christ was referring to in verse 18 when he sends us into the world. So how does this affect how we evangelize? The reality that God has always been about his own glory expressed through a people 
and he creates a people to reflect himself to the world. And when we reflect him in the world, God rejoices in that, full of joy. That joy overflows, falls on his church. The world that is looking in, looks in, believes in Jesus. God is glorified through that. How does that affect our evangelism? That means that Lone Ranger evangelism ultimately is incomplete. It means that we evangelize. It means that we share the gospel in the context of community. And obviously, I know what some of you are thinking, I can't take my parish to work, right? I, I can't be in my office all the time. Um, but man, as you, as you ask, as you invite these people into the life of your community, that's when they will begin to see the reflection of the Father's character. Imperfect as it may be, as I said, but even in that imperfection, they'll begin to see people offend one another, people get mad at each other, but people forgiving one another, and people reconciling with one another. And that speaks volumes to a world that is longing, as I said, for this unity in diversity to be expressed. Leslie, Leslie Newbegin calls this the, the hermeneutic of the gospel. And with this, I will close. He says this. He says in, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe the power which has the last word in human affairs, is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, or the, what, what explains it, what describes the gospel to people visibly, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences, and even books such as this one. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. I'll close with, with, with these words from, from Christ again. He says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Christ ultimately desires for his church to reflect the oneness and unity found in the Trinity so that God would be glorified and Jesus, and the world would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are unable, incapable of displaying a perfect, holy God to a watching world in and of ourselves we are helpless and hopeless, but we thank you for the spirit that you sent to be our helper, 
that you said it was to our advantage that you go away so the helper could come, so that we would glorify the Son, and in so doing glorify the Father, that we would share in the joy and delight that you have shared with yourself throughout all eternity within your Trinity. Help us, Lord, to go back time and time again to this gospel story that motivates and encourages us, Father, to pursue and seek this unity and share joy. We pray this in Christ's name.